You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website. Right. All right. So my understanding is that we are supposed to talk for maybe just under an hour or around an hour. Um, And I thought, I know that Damon Tonia has given a lot of interviews about her new book, the children's book, which is fabulous. Um, And so maybe she is a little tired of talking about it. Nevertheless, it is the reason we are here. So before, so I have some questions about the book and maybe that will inspire you to say something about it. But before I I say anything else, I want to say that this is the second time Damon Tonia and I meet in Oslo in public. We met, I don't know whether anyone was here then, but we met in May 2002 in the, the, the Norwegian Biographical Society to have a public discussion. It's uh, nine years ago. I looked at, I finally managed to look up the date. It's nine years ago, and then we discussed the book called The Biographer's Tale, which happens to have a long section on Ibsen in it, so that was the meeting point. So this is a wonderful opportunity to do it again. Well, we have talked since as well, and and become friends, and so that was the beginning of something really splendid, and um, I'm very happy to be back here. And so, so let us begin with the children's book. Uh, first of all, a huge, sprawling Victorian-type novel. It's set 700 pages. I am told that the Norwegian book, although it looks thicker, weighs less than the English one. <laughs> so uh, please, uh, that, that's a great reason to buy the Norwegian copy. Um, but so the children's book probably have to say something, I mean, Aslak has already described the setting of it, but I am very touched by this book because for me it is about, it's about a lot of things, but let's me begin by saying I think it's about history. I think it is about what it, and here's a generation of children born in the 1880s and 1890s, and they're born in a period, and among artists, we'll get to the art later, where they are brought up with beauty and art and optimism and utopianism, and the whole thing ends with this generation, particularly the young men being sacrificed in the trenches of the First World War. So I thought maybe we could begin by talking about history and how it catches this generation. It's like they are almost offered up in sacrifice. And so you begin in a beautiful, optimistic, fairy taleish tone, and you end in the bleakest of bleakness. Um, I think the reason it's, it works in the novel is because I have never been interested in history. Um, <laughs> as a child, I couldn't see the point of history because I kept learning dates and not on the whole imagining the people except obvious people like Queen Elizabeth I and Queen Victoria and William the Conqueror. I didn't know any political history. Nobody ever taught me any. Um, And when I started on this book, I had a small problem in a world that I did understand, which was literary history. I suddenly got interested in why, in that period, there were such good children's books. And And they were children's books that adults read with pleasure and passion. And it was also a period 
I didn't really know anything about, even from the point of view of the literature. I liked the, what I think of as the high Victorians, the time of Dickens and George Eliot. Um, and I didn't like the rather politicised generation of George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells. I didn't enjoy their work as much, so it was all new. And the more research I did, the more I became a sort of self-created historian and the more I understood how very, very, not only interesting, but important to all of us, history is. You, you have a hope, if you understand history, of understanding the present. So it was an enormous amount of work, because it, un, possession began with my knowledge of Victorian poetry, which was considerable. This began with my lack of knowledge of utopian politics and the problems of the poor and all sorts of other things that got in. I want to say about, <clears throat> it's very interesting that you do, uh, I will come to all the research you do, but looking at the vision of history in this book, it's almost as if you do all this research and there are a lot of people in this book who want to change the world, they want to make it a better world. They, they, you know, one character is agitating for a more or less socialist uh, version of of society and so on. And you have an early feminist a woman who decides that she can't live within the gender roles of the time. She wants to become a doctor instead and so on. And But still, in the end, once the First World War has happened and has broken all these families down, has destroyed all these people, you get the sense that you almost doubt that anyone can change history. Did, I mean, what, do you think we can change history um, or is, is it did you get to feel that it was more like destiny um i i'd be interested to know what you think about this because um, <laughs> um in the sort of period of university politics and the utopianism of the 1960s i was very skeptical i didn't believe you can simply set out to change the world because i actually thought human beings are not intelligent enough to change things in one leap. You can change things a bit here that you can change securely. I, my mother, for instance, was a working class woman who went to Cambridge University and then got shut in a kitchen. But what my mother did was make quite sure none of her daughters were shut in a kitchen, partly because she was so unhappy. Nobody could have born to be shut in a kitchen, but partly because she handed on to us a sense of what changes she would have liked to have seen. And I believe in that kind of thing. I think you can make certain things better rather carefully. Well, so that's about change in the, put it this way, in the ordinary everyday life that we actually live, in the family, that you make the changes you have some chance of making, but you have actually some power. Yes. The problem with the, the, the huge... From, if you want to know what I think, I think there's a huge problem with ideologies that have enormous visions of changing everything because they can lead to a kind of madness and power-hungry madness that you can see in these generals in the First World War that have massacred thousands of young men in one go without thinking. Yes, it was a, very much an ideology. The, one of the things that helped my novel was realising how much the First World War was actually a result of family battles writ large. It was a result of the resentment of the Kaiser about all the other kings in Europe, who were in fact his own cousins and grandchildren and, children and 
Queen Victoria's descendants. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think if he hadn't had this sort of rather small, intense anxiety about the Russians and the English, whom he loved, um, I can't really see a reason why it happened. You can see why the Second World War happened. But the First World War seems to have sort of boiled up, almost like a kettle. What I like, the, the, I, this whole question brings up the question of the meaning of life, of course. I mean, that's what writing is about. So now I can just ask you, what's the meaning of life? Why don't we <laughs> go there? <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not totally serious there, but um, I, I can add something, which is what's going on in this novel? I, I don't think I'm giving away anything by saying that you begin with this generation of lovely children open to fantasy and, and the the world of, of fairy tales and art and so on. And at the end, only some of them are left, and they're almost getting on for, you know, very young, middle-aged, some of them, and they are chastened, and yet they have to pick up the pieces. There's a wonderful scene at the end where you realize there's going to be more children. It's not over. There's going to be more children, and existence will carry on. Um, and it seems to me that there is some kind of idea of, the meaning of it all, if there is one in, in, in that end. Yes, I think, um, I think everybody has to find their own meaning of life. Um, I don't think there is one meaning. Some people's meaning is their children and their children's children. Um, and I think my meaning, from long before I had any choice, has been structures made in language which are beautiful and, and interesting and structures made in language, which are like structures. There's a lot of made objects in this novel. There's a lot of ceramics. There is a potter who, at a great distance, is rather like my own family. He's a working-class boy from the potteries in the middle of England, and he wants not just to make pots, you know, carrying the pots to the kiln. He wants to make a really good pot of his own, and this causes him to be both wonderful and in some ways meant rather cruel to his family because he has to make things. And then um, I discovered in Balzac's introduction to the Comédie Humaine, he said the world consists of men and women and things. And the things are the things people make. And my idea of the meaning of life at the moment is that works of art, except some there's always an exception, but most works of art are innocent, even if they're about terrible things like King Lear. And they're good, and they make it feel you feel better to be human. Whereas I don't... Th I think the only moment of English political history when I felt that politics made you feel better to be human was when I was a very small child and we invented the National Health Service. Oh. <laughs> Right. And now we complain bitterly about it all the time. But on the other hand, we try to defend it. And that was something that was better. Well, you see what's happening is since I live in America, we've poor President Obama is having a problem with inventing a national health service right now. So maybe they're not better yet in America. Um, but um, you, when you talk about making... It seems to me one thing you do in the making of at least, not all of your novels by any means, but a lot of them, you do a prodigious amount of research. And I'm very curious about the relationship between fact 
and fiction. There's research about things, there's research about institutions, but there's also research about people. And, and yet you write fiction. You, you know, you could have written a fabulous book about the period that was non-fiction, clearly. But so what, on the one hand, all the research and all the facts and all the knowledge, and on the other hand, the fiction. Um, I, I do the research because I get terribly excited by facts. Um, and I read very fast. It is useful to be a person who reads extremely fast if you feel compelled to read as much as I read. Um, on the other hand, when I'm reading, I'm not looking for what I would be looking for if I was a historian. I'm looking rather at random for connections. I believe that human language somehow turns on the nature of metaphor. One thing being connected to another thing, almost arbitrarily. And when I'm doing my research, I think this represent this is connected to that, although it hasn't been until I've connected it. And so I will read pages after pages, and then I will find something purple that reminds me of something purple in the last book I read. And I think I can make a beautiful pattern out of that. And it's partly meaningless, but it's partly the nature of art. And I th another thing I always say about fiction, and my ideal writer here is George Eliot, Art is agnostic. Art is not a belief system. Really good art just makes objects which have a coherent shape, but the shape isn't a meaning which can... I, I think there's only one novel I know of, though you will think of others, which has actually started political action, and that is Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, and the black people in America really hate that book. <laughs> I, I have had long arguments and quarrels with Toni Morrison... And I say, you know, you might try and look at it without hating it because it doesn't record speech properly. And she says, no, no, it's no good. Um, but I think it was a great political novel and it did cause change. But I can't think of another. Well, um, we maybe throw that out to the audience when we get to the questions. One political novel. You see, I think of other texts like The Second Sex, by the, which really did change people's lives, but that's not a novel. And it's, it's not a novel. Uh, by any means. <laughs> so, so, yes, I was wondering as we were speaking about Ibsen, because he certainly... Doll's House? That could, did that, but you, it's hard to say with art, because on the one hand, the doll's house could be said to inspire women's liberation. On the other hand, it is the most remarkable expression of something that's already afoot in the culture, but it names something that might have been happening anyway, but maybe not in that way. So you don't, you know, what no, comes I, I, I think that's what it. I think that's what it is, and I think it's a work of art which makes available to you the nature of the feelings that Nora slowly begins to realise she has. This is different from saying women should do this, women should do that. Um, Nora's choice is Nora's choice. And Ibsen, I think Ibsen always does that. Um, and when you said that the things were already in the culture, when I was a student, I was taught that Dickens was a social novelist who changed society. If you actually look at Dickens's novels in history... He's usually writing about something where society has already begun to change. You know, he's, he's writing, as it were, the gripping fiction about something that is already happening. By the time he wrote Oliver Twist, people were, or people were trying to change the workhouses. So in some ways, the great novelist is someone who almost 
channels his or her culture, someone who gives expression to something. It's not like they're taking it out of the void, but yet the imagination and the work of language gives it shape. Yes, it is a question of shape. And um, it's very interesting. I've I've been doing a a project with, with Rolex, and Rolex has a series of artistic mentors. This meant I found myself in the Tate Gallery with a panel of world novelists, all of whom had been working with Rolex. And the African novelists were sitting on the stage saying, the novel changes society. I have to go out and cause this to happen. And the European novelists were sitting in a rather unhappy row, (laughs) sort of staring upwards at the determined Africans. And, um, And an interesting case in terms of whether you change the world and what you write about. I'm very interested in Nadine Gordimer, who I think was naturally a person who wrote very intricately about individual human problems and was driven into having to take on history because of where she found herself in in history. Um, Well, exactly, exactly. And I just think that reflections on history and art are also running through this whole new novel. I mean, in children's book, whether or not it's the explicit intention of the author, you can't stop, at least I can't when I read it, stop thinking about the intersection of making art and destroying art, making art, making beauty, and then blowing it all up, making children, killing men, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful interweaving of these huge existential themes, and yet it's so concrete. It's like the descriptions of each work of art, is, they're gorgeous. You know, if you, you can imagine. What I want to know about that is how did you get to write so many wonderful descriptions of imaginary arts of work? Did you? <laughs> or are they not imaginary, all of them? Most of them are imaginary. Um, and the, I do it the way I do everything else. I make people by connecting the same sort of thing in an enormous number of people I read about. And in the same way, I get a kind of ideal pot in my mind that I wish I had made. <laughs> and... Um, And I did, um, one of the nice things about getting old and people taking you seriously is that (laughs) you can do things like write to, I started with silver and gold rather than pots. I wrote to the um, Victoria and Albert Museum and said, can anybody help me find an object? Because one of my main metaphors in, in this novel is gold and silver. And that came from the story of the princess whose father wanted to marry her. And her godmother in the French version and a talking horse, I think, in the German version, tell her, you ask him for a gold dress because he can't give you one, and he does. Ask him for a silver dress because he won't ever manage to give you one, and he does. Ask for a dress that's the colour of the sky and the forests, and he does. So then the princess has to run away wrapped up in furs. Um, And... Somewhere in there was this sense I had of the family breaking up at that period and the fathers loving the daughters perhaps too much. And I like to have a fairy tale structure in my narrative. But one of the things I did once I... I did two things once I realised that gold and silver were running through it as a leitmotif. Um, I asked the British... I asked the Victoria and Albert if I could come and look at some objects. And I decided to study the city of London which deals in real gold and silver. 
So I have a character who's a banker. Of course. Of course, and there's the banker. I run yes. the imagery. There's the, the, one of the most wonderful books I've ever read. It's a three-volume city, History of the City of London. I've now forgotten the author's name, but it will come back to me. And um, it was a revelation. It was so interesting. And it was full of sort of amazing objects and amazing characters who behaved in... And I learned a bit about the First World War by doing that, because when the First World War happens in the city of London, the Rothschilds are still worrying about the gold standard and sending each other's messages about investments. They have no idea this is coming. And then, of course, all the Germans had to leave the city. So I'd found a bit of drama, which I had had no idea of, by looking for a metaphor. And then the gold and silver people in the Victoria and Albert, I said to them, I, I need a lot of pottery. And so they took me to the ceramics department and introduced me to the Dutch head of ceramics. And he took me round. And there was a terrible moment when I said, I'm quite interested in early Italian Majolica. And he produced this bowl. And it was beautiful. The colours were wonderful. The landscape on it was beautiful. It was thin. And he said, hold it. Oh. <laughs> and I said, I can't do that. I'm scared of it. And he said, well, you won't understand it. And he put it in my hands. And it's quite true. You don't know a pot unless you know it with your fingers. But again, if I hadn't had that access to somebody to tell me that, and I sort of accumulate little bits of knowledge in that way, all of which are intensely pleasurable. And, um, and so the pots got mixed up with the gold and silver, and I found the candlestick, which the gold and silver lady immediately understood I needed because it's a non-Christian object. Oh, right. It's a kind of Nordic pagan object. Um, and so it was all very pleasurable, really. They're very exhausting. I can, I can imagine. Um, I am going to switch the topic to something that I'm very interested in. And we've already heard that Damon Tonia is interested in it too. But I'm going to say we've now been talking about all these great universal th themes. We've been talking about history and the meaning of life and art and beauty and fact and fiction. And obviously we just touched on these things. But now the question... Um, which is, you are, one could describe you as a woman writer, just factually. There is, and at the same time, you have often said that you consider yourself a feminist politically. You already re referred to the question of whether your destiny was the kitchen or not. So clearly, so, but, the, but I also happen to know that you have uh, views on what it means to be a woman writer or to say that one is a woman writer. Um, and maybe you would like to tell uh, us. I was much more sure I was a woman writer when I began. Um, because in Britain at that time, it, you could argue that the most important writers were women. There was Doris Lessing, there was Muriel Spark, there was Iris Murdoch. Of course. There was, though she began later, but she was of that generation, the great Penelope Fitzgerald. Um, and then there were men. There was William Golding. There were Kingsley Amis and John Wayne who weren't anywhere near as good or as interesting as the women. Very true, yes. But the culture knew it. I mean, if you looked at the book pages in the newspapers, nobody said Iris Murdoch is only a woman. Nobody said 
you know, it doesn't matter too much what Doris Lessing thinks because she's only a woman. They did say she was a feminist writer with, you know, a feminist message, and this made her very angry because she thought she had done a huge work of art which included a study of feminism or of being a woman. Um, and then what happened in British culture was that we got a kind of political feminist movement and we got in the universities a literary feminist movement. And I, as a writer, felt people were telling me what I ought to be writing about. And they were doing things like saying that women shouldn't write about men and men shouldn't write about women. I mean, only some of them did this. But they were running down the great men writers and saying Tolstoy didn't really understand Anna Karenina. And, and to the extent that he didn't have a female body, he didn't entirely. But he, he did, and to the extent that he didn't like her, he only understood her in one way. But nevertheless, this was not very helpful. And um, what I will provocatively go on to say is that at exactly that point, when women were being told they ought to be writing about what it was like to be a woman, which they had been doing anyway, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but when they were told that they ought to, suddenly all the really good writers in Britain were men. That's, so who were the men coming up then? Um, well, Martin Amos, Ian McEwan, oh, Salman Rushdie, Kazuo, right, Ishiguru. Right, right, right. Um, and where were the women? It was Angela Carter who unfortunately writer, died. Yes. And there was Hilary Mantel, who at that stage was not fully Hilary Mantel, although, you know, she is arguably a lot better than some of those men writers. But the men were sort of flamboyant. And the society got more male, the more feminist critics said that women write. And also, in a sense, I think the history of French women's writing and American women's writing is that the writers really were at a disadvantage in the literary society. But I don't think they were in Britain, and I think they possibly now are. And you think feminism caused this? I have occasionally had a very angry theory that it possibly was not helping. Mm. Well, this is, of course, puts, um, me, literary puts me in, in somewhat of a dilemma here. So let's, let me see if this, um, this might work. First of all, I think that if the essence of art is something like freedom, you cannot create without freedom. Obviously, a serious artist whatever gender, will always chafe against any kind of political rule. I mean, whether it's the socialists who tell you you got to write about happy tractor drivers, or whether it's the feminists telling you about you got to delve into the female psyche when what you want to work about, write about is a, is a pot, for example, then yeah. clearly um, this is always, it's always going to be really difficult for writers. And I don't think that's typical just for feminism as a political... No, it movement. isn't it's at all. Political, There's a very complicated relation between political prescription yeah, and so, independent so, works so in of terms art. of the freedom to write. Now, but what you said, which I think was fascinating, is that the moment, say, there was, whether it was, I will be kinder to my feminist sisters and say whether or not it was the feminist uh, debates or whether it was for some other reason that women writers, say, in the 70s, start exploring female experiences very much more intensively than they'd done before, maybe. That is, they are becoming interested in femininity or women's experiences. Mm -hmm. 
romances or whatever. No, I'm not saying they weren't before, but I do agree that a book like A Golden Notebook is a vast study of a whole society. A study of Marxism as well as... Yeah, and including, and, and the post-colonial situation yeah. is all in... The, the, the Golden Notebook is a world, but it is a yeah. very interesting world made by a woman. It's uh, also a new literary form. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. wasn't said as much as it should have been. I, I can't believe that many people have written off the Golden Notebook as some kind of dreary old realism just because it tries to capture a whole society in the most avant-garde modern form you can imagine. So we, we obviously agree on, on, on Doris Lessing there. But so the, the thing is, for me, when women, this is something I have noticed, and I actually talked a bit about this yesterday in my talk here, that when women start exploring women's issues and women's experience, I'm not sure they become worse writers, but I am sure that the culture receives it as potentially less universal, as potentially much more myopic, private, personal. And as we know, all great art speaks about more than just the person of the writer. So that... Um, I wonder whether it's also to do with the reception that suddenly if the women, for whatever reason, start writing about themselves and women, then the reception is, oh, this is boring, this is women's experiences, we don't want to read about that. Look at these fascinating men writing about these other things. Like peacocks. Yes, yeah, I, exactly. I, I, uh, um, I lost something. Oh, yes. I, I lost an anecdote which is going back a bit, and so mm -hmm. I will say it very quickly. I I was talking at the Institute of Contemporary Art in London with... I was on a platform with David Lodge. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about the contemporary novel. And I had just been talking to Doris Lessing, who had come back from somewhere on an aeroplane and was sitting next to a man who was a... He was a big businessman. And she felt that the novel doesn't know how to deal with big business, so she was grilling him. Ah, yes. And she was asking him a lot of questions. And he finally got round to saying, and what do you do? Uh -huh. So she said, I'm a novelist. He said, I had this terrible love affair. It would make a really good novel. <laughs> and she was trying to... Anyway, this anecdote I told in the ICA. And somebody stood up and said, um, you don't need to write about big business. All human politics is in the kitchen. Now, he said, I don't believe that. It isn't. There are great big social structures like big business which are not in the kitchen, and the kitchen is not a paradigm. And the kitchen is just as... Well, it doesn't interest me as much, but it is interesting. And I could write... Um, there's a wonderful novel by Robert Irwin about a woman with a vacuum cleaner going slowly mad. And I said, how did you know what it was like for a woman to be in a house going slowly mad with a vacuum cleaner? And he said, well, it was me. I was the house husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, uh, I actually think that the idea, the it, it's very interesting in the Doris Lessing anecdote where the businessman, the businessman doesn't realize that the novelist has been asking him all these questions. That's what she thinks. I mean, she wanted to know about business, and he thinks novels 
equals love, love affairs. Yeah. So you get this idea that, and particularly he's there with a woman novelist. I mean, that's part of it. So if women write novels, it's got to be about love affairs yeah. and maybe kitchens. I, I think my view is <laughs> my, my view is that, of course, kitchens can be as interesting as anything else. I mean, why, why should one write about, not write about the kitchen if that's what you feel passionate about? I mean, that's what matters. I mean, you can't write well if you don't f- feel no, that it's no, important. No, no, you have a right to write about whatever you like. Um, as long as it really interests you. I I did feel that there was a certain pressure on women to write about being women in certain ways, as well as women discovering how to write about being women in certain ways. I've always had trouble with Iri Garay. So have I. (laughs) So anyway, uh, I do think that the issue, I mean, what's coming uh, for for me, what's fascinating here is that um, Dame Antonia has voiced certain opinions about not wanting to be seen as a woman writer all the time in that reductive sense. Oh, if you're a woman writer, you must be writing about love affairs and kitchens and feelings. Clearly, uh, and I'm totally in favor of that in the sense that clearly should be able to write about the largest themes in the world. Um, I'm also against the idea of labelling feelings and kitchens as feminine and female. So the example That's why of, I so love yeah, Robert Irwin. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But so one thing that I'm also interested in in your work is that um, Damon Tonya used, I mean, she still writes fabulous reviews and you do a lot of reviewing of books. You and obviously read a lot of books. But one of your early books was a book on Iris Murdoch. And Iris Murdoch is a writer. She was both a philosopher and a novelist. And in a way, um, she starts writing in the post-war period. I'm never sure how much people read Iris Murdoch in Norway, but I I think she's vastly readable and very interesting as a philosopher as well. And I think it's interesting that I think the book on Iris Murdoch was your first non-fiction book. So, So what made you pick... A woman writer and Iris Murdoch as that subject because this was before feminist literary criticism. The book came out in 65. And so there wasn't at that moment that the idea that women critics must write about women or anything. You see, I wouldn't have been able to do it once there was. Ah, um, against the grain. Yeah. You would write. <laughs> what I actually said to my publisher was, I've discovered this novelist, and he turned out to be her publisher too. And I said, I don't understand how she is structuring these books. I don't understand what the form is doing. I was actually not bothered about the characters. I couldn't understand the form. And I said, if I write an essay, my idea was to write a small little booklet, not a big book. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, we'll publish a book if you write it. So um, it's partly his fault. Um, but um, I didn't understand how the shape of her novels came to be the way it was. And by the time I'd written the book, I understood the philosophical bases that were constructing it. Um, I don't think she is that good on women, actually. On women, no. I mean, I mean she isn't. never said, but she is quite fascinating in, in, in the way in which... In, I, I liked her first book. Her uh, first book I liked best. Yeah, well, I like that. But she got so angry when anybody said that, understandably. Oh, really? So, well, yes, because it's awful if you've written about 30 books and people keep saying, yes, but I like your first book <laughs> best. <laughs> True. But, but now she's dead, I can say it. 
<laughs> well, in, in any case, in case you want to know, Iris Murdoch's first book was called Under the Net. It came out in something like 1954. Um, and it is in very many ways a completely imaginative and British take on a theme that you can also find in Sartre's Nausea, but it's a totally individual and, and creative work. And instead of being just about existen existentialism, you have a kind of Wittgenstein figure in there too. Yeah. It's, it's all fascinating. Well, the title Under the Net came from Wittgenstein describing structures of thought as nets with different sizes of holes. Exactly. And he says, we can never know the truth, however hard we may try to creep under the net. And it was when I found that description in something else she'd written that I began to understand how her novels were formed. Yeah, that and, was And that was a good moment, that was. So, um, <laughs> so there's always the pleasure of... Uh, there's always the pleasure of discovering, see something, and then the hard thing is to give it the correct expression, so actually show people what you see. <laughs> I mean, that's the hard bit. I want to move brutally to the... Well, it's not a brutal move, but it is about form. You have said throughout this discussion, I mean, we began by, you know, talking about finding the form, talking about metaphors and so on, and I... I thought I'd try to ask you, you know, for many, many years, there was a real uh, critique of what you might call, well, traditional realism. But you started out by, you know, you've mentioned George Eliot and Balzac and Tolstoy, at least so far, which sounds like realism to me. And I am on paper as liking Ibsen, so that's realism too, in a way. Um, but here's, here's the question. So this... There's realism, and the way people have thought about this, there's realism. I mean, I don't actually agree with this story fully, but let's say there was realism, and then there was modernism, and then there was postmodernism, and now where are we? And so the question here is, when Possession, which I think a lot of you have read, when Possession came out, it was hailed as a great postmodern novel because it was pastiche, you know, there were, it's amazing the way you write in different Victorian voices, and we have a game of mirrors and so on. And then you get this new book, children's book, which is long and looks realist. And does that mean you are no longer a postmodern writer or were you ever a postmodern writer? Or how do you think no, about I never that? understood what the word meant. Oh, um, good. There, we take it from there. <laughs> I, I had found a form for possession mm -hmm. and it took me a long time because my... Uh, there are several answers to this all in all. Um, let's start with possession. My original idea for possession was very modernist. I wanted to write about some critics trying to understand some dead poets. Or uh, I think it started with a critic and a dead poet. And the poetry was under the net. Mm. You know, you looked at the net and you got little shadows of what the poetry might have been. And then I had a, another moment of vision with a really rather odd experience. I read Umberto Eco. I read The Name of the Rose, which is a postmodernist work. And I read what he said, which is that he wanted to kill a monk. And <laughs> I suddenly, for the first time in my life, really, thought that the plot was the most important thing. And I also thought about Eco, that he can tell you anything about philosophy or medieval angels as long as he's got a strong plot. 
So I thought, I will write every kind of plot into possession. There will be not one but two love stories um, and the love of the present for the past. I will have a detective story of a quite vulgar kind. I will have the kind of story I read in Georgette Hare when I was a little girl. And then I can put Victorian poetry in it. But I still thought I couldn't write the poetry. And I thought I would do... There was a Canadian author who took some obscure Victorian poetry and turned it into a libretto for an imaginary opera. Um, Robertson Davis. Oh, of course. And I said to my then editor, which was... A, my first editor was Cecil Day-Lewis, who was a poet, and my then editor was D.J. Enright, who was a, a better poet. Um, <laughs> though, um, and I said to Dennis, you know, I've seen because of what I'm saying that the poetry is more important than the criticism, that the poetry has to be in the book. And I'm going to quote, so I'm, I might use, I said, early Ezra Pound, which looks Victorian. And he said, Antonia, you will write them yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a true story, and we were at a party. And so I went home and I thought, I'll just try. And I wrote a lyric just like that. So, and my head is full of Victorian poetry because I grew up on it. And so, in a sense, it wasn't postmodern. I mean, I think the original structure I've invented is actually the, the biographer's tale. And I think almost nobody has understood that book. Uh, but well, then in that case, since the biographer's tale was the reason we first met, mm -hmm. you now can explain that book to us, maybe. Maybe we failed the last time. Uh, if you, the biographer's tale, great book, three sections, three different biographies in a way. There's Ibsen and Linnaeus and Galton. Um, Galton, yeah. And uh, anyway, so how does the, the, that describe the structure? Well, I was working slightly about... It's about a man who decides to stop being a postmodern literary critic. Yeah, I actually <laughs> found that quote. <laughs> he can't stand... Po and particularly not post-structuralism. He has to give it up because of post-structuralism. Yes, words. and he says that... He says that it reduces all texts to being exactly the same text. And I was going to some seminars at the time in University College, and we had this odd feeling that whatever you were talking about, it was exactly the same as whatever you talked about last week, because you applied the same net, keeping to Iris Murdoch's metaphor. And so, anyway, he decides to give up criticism, and he decides he'll write a biography. And he is persuaded to write a biography of the great biographer, And he finds the biographer has left no papers except his notes, or rather at random on, on a card index, for a biography of Galton, a biography of Linnaeus, and a biography of Ibsen, none of which he ever wrote. And what I think the structure of my biographer's tale is, is it's a depiction of the stage of my research I'm at before I've constructed the whole so it's a kind... I, I couldn't say that, I think, when I talked to you because I hadn't worked it out. I was doing it by instinct. But I think what I've done is write a novel before an, a novel is written. This is, say more about that because that will also bring us to the question of how you actually put a novel together and particularly a large and complex novel. I mean, The Bagos Tale is shorter, but um, bearing in mind the children's book, I mean, how do you do it? I mean... Literally, we've talked about you do the research and we know that you focus on, you zoom in on the detail and the connections and the meetings, but now you've done that and that could be an orca. Where is it? In notebooks? Do you spread yeah. it on the floor? I mean, <laughs> um, how do you... you know, no, I have very big A4 notebooks with <clears throat> narrow lines mm -hmm. and 
Um, and I write a lot of quotations into the notebooks. And this which, is all by hand, no yes. computer here. <laughs> I, I, do, I do the chronology on the computer and I made a terrible mistake. I mean, one of the people in the children's book is missing a year of its life. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally I get a letter from a reader saying, I think you're missing a year here. Um, <laughs> And the copy editor said, you're missing a year, you'll just have to change the whole book, which, of course, I couldn't do by then because it was in print. Mm. Um, and she seemed to think it would be easy to do that, whereas, in fact, it was totally impossible. But um, so that's... I, I make mistakes. But if you've condensed all your reading into things you've written in notebooks... Well, how many would there be? Would there be, like, one... I mean, do you have, like, 50 notebooks? Or? I have about six or eight of these very big, yeah. very dense notebooks for each novel. And then I read them through. And already the selection of what fits together with what is being done. Because in the note... I have never said this before. I've never really thought it out. But in the notebooks, I put something down next to something that it seems to fit next to. And then when I, when I read the notebooks, I sort of write a resume of how it now seems to be fitting to the other things. And so you are writing, it's, as you read your notebooks, you're writing something... You, you're writing... Further on in the notebook, and I say, ah. look at page 42 of this notebook, there is a very good, interesting observation about this problem. Mm -hmm. And then I write, every now and then I write a series of observations which is called Next Things. And this ah. is an attempt to get the chronology right, and it's not right, so I write it again, putting it in a different order. And I could do that better on a computer, but for some reason... I'm compelled to do it with a pencil, a pen in a notebook. Um, so now you have gone over your notebooks and you put more notes in the notebook saying how the notes fit together. Yes, because I'm compressing it. But, but we still don't have a novel here. Where's the novel then? Well, Where does it come? How um, does the... I found a wonderful metaphor when talking to, to Seidenfaden in Copenhagen. It's like growing mushrooms. You have a mulch mm -hmm. of sort of mud and things. And the characters come up out of the mushrooms. They come up like mushrooms out of the mud. And you look at them and you start to see who they are. The characters tend to come last. Oh. You know, I, I only once ever taught a creative writing class. Um, and a man came to me and he said, I've got this wonderful character, you know, and he's angry about this and he's... And he said, I don't know what period of history to put him in. And I said, you can't do that. Characters grow out of periods of history. You know, you, you can't just invent somebody and then decide where to put him. And so I wait for the characters. And the book I'm writing at the moment, it has two women psychoanalysts who hate each other. Sounds good. <laughs> um, and one is Austrian and the other ought to be American, but I can't write American. Oh. So she's English. Oh. Um, and then I have, I've just discovered that English men psychoanalysts tend to be rather upper class and ride to hounds. And so a shadow is coming to me. But it started there. It didn't start with the character of the psychoanalyst. It started right. with the observation that the class origin of English male psychoanalysts is not what I thought it was. And, um, and I've got some Germans. Um, <laughs> And some Austrians. And they, I've, got a, I've got a German surrealist who now has a name since I came to Oslo. Oh, what but, name? Well, he was going to be called Seidenfaden because it's 
I wanted sort of to pay tribute to the editor of Politik and, mm-hmm. um, and because it's Zeidenfaden is such a beautiful word. And I couldn't get a monosyllable, but somebody who was interviewing me said, Klaus will do. And it is right. So I now have a surrealist called Klaus Seidenfaden, but I don't really know what he's like. <laughs> because it's very important he shouldn't be like Max Ernst. Oh. Because I love Max Ernst. And Max Ernst keeps constructing this character when I'm not looking. And I keep saying, no, no, move away from Max Ernst. <laughs> and that, as I'm at a quite early stage with this book, so it's all rather like that. And there was a terrible... Um, there was a terrible incident in the Surrealists where, it wasn't Prevert, it was, one, it was a man who begins with a P. He actually rung up Cocteau's mother and in a Surrealist incident told Cocteau's mother that Cocteau had been killed in a traffic accident. Oh, dear. And I thought that's just the sort of dreadful disaster that happens when you have the kind of beliefs that the Surrealists had. So I know that somebody does something rather like that. So out of that, but so I, so you, that's all in your notebooks now. But at some point, and this is my last technical question, I thought you might all enjoy hearing how she does it, and then maybe we'll go home and do it too. You never know. <laughs> so <clears throat> even even if only as on a small scale, I think that would doing as good. But so it's all there in the notebooks. But sooner or later, you got to write something that you know. I mean, when do you know you've written a sentence that actually in the book? Like, do you begin at the beginning and this is the first yes. sentence? Uh, I mean, this is actually the other very important part of the way I work. Um, because I see a novel in a very female form, which is knitting. Ah, so um, here's and it's the one woman writer long thread. Again. Oh yes. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I was perfectly happy being a woman writer before people started telling me I had to be one. <laughs> so, so I suppose we'll just to, to reinforce that point. It's just wonderful to be a woman writer as long as nobody tries to tell you what you must write just because you're a woman writer. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> um, and um, so, but, so I tend to write the first yeah. sentence, mm-hmm. which takes a week or two because you can't get it right. And then I go on writing. And if I make a mistake and I see that something is happening that didn't or that one of the sentences is bad, I start the page again. So I never cross out. And this is still by hand? Yes. Ah. And so I've, ta- I mean, I've now taken to keeping the early drafts, which I didn't do when I was younger. Um, so when I've finished, I've got a completely consecutive thread of writing which goes from the beginning to the end. And indeed, in possession, I wrote the poems in the place where they come in the form of the novel. I didn't sit down and write the poems and then write the novel to go around them. I I have a strong feeling that a novel is a thread. Uh, And of course, if if you write something, uh, this sounds absurd, but if you write something that didn't happen, you've got a hole in the novel which you have to mend. I think that I think that's quite lovely the idea. But with your novels, then, if novels are like knitting, your novels are some incredibly complex, multicolored Norwegian pattern, very complex sweater. I think is being constructed in your novels. No, I do think of them as being yeah. like that. It's so. Uh... So, and then since we're getting up to one o'clock, uh, one o'clock, eight o'clock, and it's uh, also time soon, will be time for the audience to say something. Um, I, I did want to say, I did want to draw attention to one 
to an enormous work that that you wrote, which is your quartet, the Frederica Quartet. I do believe that has been published in Norway, right? So yeah. the, the one that begins with the Virgin in the Garden goes through Still Life, Babel Tower, and a Whistling Woman, and that you actually worked on from, I mean, from the publication dates, 1978 to 2002, which is like half a lifetime of living mm. with the quartet. I'm not saying you obviously wrote other things in between, um, but I was wondering what pushed you. I have, I'm a great admirer of that quartet. I think the Virgin in the Garden is a fantastic evocation, also of a moment in English. History is it 1952? Yeah. Is it or three? 53, the yeah, coronation the, yeah, of, course, of the, queen. the coronation. And so, what, com, what what pushed you into that that whole? That's an enormous undertaking. What made you want to write the Virgin in the Garden? And did you know from the beginning that it was going to be uh, four books and um, and 24 years? I didn't know about the 24 years, which, which was due to a lot of sort of accidents in my life, really, and things that stopped me writing for long periods altogether. But um, I did know it was four books. I remember thinking, must have been about 1962, actually. I thought, goodness, I'm quite old. I've lived through a lot of history. <laughs> I can now write a book, you know, on a larger scale than just about the feelings of a woman, which I found very restrictive. My first novel was very much about the feelings of a young woman who was afraid of the kitchen. And she had a father who was a great writer. Yeah, I love uh, that. I think that I do want to plug the first novel, Shadow of the Sun. It's a wonderful book. 1964, very interesting moment in time. It's about two years um, after The Golden Notebook, is it? Mm -hmm. Just about. And it is a wonderful evocation of a very intelligent young woman with a crazy but genius father. And this this evil weasel-like teacher she has, and this... Well, we won't go there, but I do recommend it. Well, the but Weasel Like anyway. Teacher, of course, is yeah. based on Dr. Levis, who perhaps has oh, not it's known it. Well, Levis. it was ah, the relationship thought... between the sort of worshipping teacher and the writer. And I used to think, I mean, Dr. Levis worshipped D.H. Lawrence, and I thought if he'd actually met him, uh-huh. it wouldn't have been very successful. Uh, <laughs> I should say, just to fill in the, the background, I'm sure some, uh, a lot of you may know this already, but Dr. Levis... Levis was the dominant literary critic in in England until certainly throughout the 50s and the the 60s. By the late 60s, probably his star was waning. And he had this idea, particularly, was it The Great Tradition, that book is called? And, of course, The the Great Tradition... I'm no Levisite, but the great tradition is the tradition of great English realist novels that make you a better person, that fully express Englishness in all its English way. And it's full of admiration precisely for the the D.H. Lawrence thing. It's all about catching the life and the energy and the, should I say, the sap of the uh, English If he had met him, it would have been a disaster. So, so anyway. But he does say, I mean, at the centre of that is George Eliot. Yeah, and he says George Eliot is the English Tolstoy, yeah, and and he is right about that. And he is right yeah, about yeah, yeah. that. And Apart from some, he had some other problems, but in any case, in your novel, he turns up. He turns up in this wee. Uh, I mean, he's not a great. Uh, obviously, he's a rather horrid person. Really. Yes, he is. Um, he mistreats this young woman. Terribly. I mean, underneath that was a, a young woman at university. I wrote a lot of it when I was a student, um, and there's a young woman afraid both of the kitchen and of being shut in a women's college to teach. I mean, it was a woman who 
knew she wanted to write a novel and thought rather gloomily that most people want to write a novel and most people can't. And Do you think that's... A, I mean, I can see a character thinking that. Do you think most people want to write a novel? Um, well, I knew a lot of people who were trying to write a novel, yes. Yeah, I'm just thinking. Uh, most people reading English in those days wanted to write a novel. That is probably true. I mean, studying English at university in the 60s, that was like to get close to the novel writing. I mean, in, in a way, what else would you do? But, <laughs> but, 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 but I, had, I had a friend who was a student of Dr. Lewis, and he wrote a novel, and he took it to a publisher, and the publisher accepted the novel. And then the writer became panic-struck about what Dr. Leavis would think if he actually saw this novel. He went and fetched it back. <laughs> Did he ever publish it? No. Oh, how terrible. How terrible. So, so, sad. But, um... so in any case, that got us away, since we now have been talking about Shadow of the Sun, that rather got us away from that last point I wanted to touch, which was the Frederica quartet, the, the, the virgin in the garden and still life and all that. That, that. You started that because you felt you were so old that you could now catch history. Was that in yes, the 60s? Yes, that was one. <laughs> Two was I'd just been blinded by reading Proust. Oh. And I hadn't known that prose could do as many things at the same time. As the, again, it was a technical thing about Proust. It wasn't his subject matter. It was the, it was the prose. And I was overcome by it. And so I thought, and three, I had two small children born within a year of each other, so I had very little time to write. So I said to myself, I will make a very long plan and I'll put it in notebooks. That's when the notebooks began. I see. And I will keep building it, even if I'm not allowed to write it. Um, and it sort of got longer. And, and I always knew it would be four books, the first and the last of which would be George Eliot-like realism. And the two middle ones would be experimental, about language being torn loose from the world, which I thought it was in the 60s. Mm. We've no time to talk about that. But So I wrote one called Still Life that was just about the body. Mm -hmm. And the other one, Babel Tower, was just about language. And then I tried to put it together again in A Whistling Woman. Um, and I meant to write Still Life with no metaphors, and I couldn't. Mm. Well, um, I learned from this conversation uh, many things, but one is the relationship between the pleasure of knowing things, knowledge, I mean, just knowing what human beings have been doing in, in all kinds of spheres of life, that's what you seem to delight in so deeply, and it sort of snails its way into your novels in every way. The range of your interests going from form and metaphor to snails and um, double helixes and all that, it's, um, it's amazing. And I think it's for us it's something to think about that we live in an age which is called the information age, but information sort of zaps by so fast that you don't even have the time to, to register it. Then is the question, and we tend to think of the works of art and imagination as nothing to do with that, more or less. And, and I, I do think that novels have an amazing role to play in teaching us, teaching us things about the world in addition to all the other things they do. And your novels are 
packed with delight in, in learning things. That I, I, I like that. I do know that some critics think, oh, that makes them hard to read. There's so much to learn. But we should want to learn. I mean, I'm a, I'm a professor. I think we should all want to learn. <laughs> I, mean, I did use a final sentence from me. Mm-hmm. I did use Google a lot. Writing <laughs> there you go. So, but I use Google on top of books. So um, th- that means that Google is allowed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Dame Antonia, for talking to us all for this evening. It, for me, it's been oh, fascinating. You. I hope it's been good for you, and I think we should applaud Antonia. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.